Welcome to Equipped and Established, a podcast of Valley Bible Church where we seek to equip people with the Word of God to be established in the truth. Hey everyone, this is episode 37 of the Equipped and Established podcast. Thanks for listening. Today's episode is part of our 10-minute theology series where we talk about a certain topic of theology in around 10 minutes. And this week, we are actually wrapping up our series on the anticipation of the Messiah. And so if you remember, we've been spending the last few weeks looking at this anticipation of the Messiah that we see throughout the Old Testament. We've kind of covered various passages ranging all the way from Genesis to, we ended last time even mentioning Malachi. So kind of beginning, end of Old Testament, we've kind of seen all throughout it. But today, what we're going to focus on is the culmination of all that hope, that angst, that longing as we turn to the New Testament. And so if you remember, uh, last time we left off with kind of a cliffhanger uh, that Israel ought to be on the lookout for Elijah the prophet, who was kind of to be the next event to come. And in most Bibles, you might have like maybe one page separating the Old from the New Testament. And so you have that final prophecy of Malachi, and then you just turn the page and boom, like you're in the Gospels and you're reading about the birth of Jesus. Um, and it's all quick and all that. But we have to keep in mind that that one page that separates those kind of two books there actually represents 400 years 400 years pass from the time of Malachi to the time that the Gospels pick up. So you can imagine a lot has changed in Israel during that time. To put it into perspective, just think of even like our nation's history, 400 years ago was like the time of the pilgrims. Okay, so has a lot changed since then? Yeah, for sure. So a lot has changed in the time of Israel. And for example, the Old Testament ends with uh, like Medo-Persia kind of in charge of everything. And then the New Testament suddenly opens with Rome in charge of everything. Um, and then when you look at history, you actually see like the reign of Greece was like in between that time as well. And, and so a lot has happened to Israel over these hundreds of years. But one of the most significant things is that during that time, there was no word from the Lord, which is why some refer to this time as the 400 years of silence. You have a nation that continually heard from the Lord through the prophets all throughout their history, and then suddenly nothing for 400 years. That's significant. So with all that in mind, let's keep, let's keep that context kind of in mind here as we now turn to the New Testament. And if you want to start more chronologically in order, uh, we actually need to go to Luke chapter 1 first. And what is significant here is that the first event we see in the New Testament is the proclamation of the birth of who? John the Baptist. And why is that the first event recorded chronologically? Because remember how the Old Testament ended. Who was to come next? What was kind of the next event on the calendar? Elijah the prophet based on Malachi. And so we see the Gospels, um, from the Gospels that John the Baptist comes in the spirit and power of Elijah and really is this Elijah being referred to back in Malachi. 
So he needs to be that kind of first event that happens. Okay, so he's that forerunner of the Messiah, the one preparing the way for the Messiah. And so he is the first one that needs to come, right? And so that's where the New Testament starts chronologically. And so you can imagine the excitement of the people at this time. There had been 400 years of silence, and now finally kind of a word from the Lord. But do you kind of remember the irony of what happened to Zechariah due to his lack of faith when he was told that his wife would give birth to John? He was struck mute. And so Israel, after 400 years of silence, they finally have a word from the Lord, but the person who heard it couldn't even talk about it. But the people knew something had happened. Okay, they knew like Zechariah could speak and all that when he went into the temple. And then now he comes out and he can't speak and all that, right? Like, so they knew something happened. And you can imagine the excitement, the anticipation that is building. Like, it seems like God's at work again, right? Like, there, there's this excitement building. But then Luke chapter 1 not only talks about the proclamation of the birth of John the Baptist, but also gives the account of the proclamation made to Mary of the birth of Jesus, who would be the Messiah. And so you, you see that she would be the virgin mentioned in Isaiah 7.14 who would give birth to the Messiah. But as we continue through the birth narrative, this isn't probably what you would ex- maybe expect from the birth of the long-awaited Messiah. I think if you kind of, kind of went through your mind of um, what would you kind of expect uh, this birth to look like, this long-awaited birth of this individual who'd been uh, really longed for for generation after generation after generation and you had in your mind of what you think that would be what we have accounted in the gospels isn't probably what you would imagine right um and so for example right like if you remember mary and joseph are betrothed and then mary is found to be with child from the holy spirit and joseph is going to divorce her quietly when he found out about this because what was the assumption she committed adultery And so not the start that you would imagine for the birth of the Messiah. But before he divorces her, what? The Lord intervenes. An angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream, and he explains all that has happened. And so Joseph, um, a righteous man, obeys what the Lord had commanded him and uh, still took Mary as his wife. Okay? And so then we'll, that's kind of like in Matthew. And so picking up kind of in Luke chapter two, where we see the actual birth of Jesus recorded. And as we come to this passage, again, you'll kind of see this mix of kind of a a glorious birth that you would maybe expect from, um, for the Messiah, as well as though like a lowly birth that maybe you wouldn't necessarily expect. But in the end, it is all glorious, right? As we'll see, it is all glorious. Even if it's maybe not what we would have thought, it ends up bringing glory and honor to God, right? And that's what's key. Okay, so let's pick up in Luke 2, verse 1, and I'll just read through first kind of six verses of this chapter real quick. It says, In those days decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius, I think that's how you say it, uh, was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, 
to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And so this account starts off so glorious. Okay, you have Caesar Augustus. So again, like ruling Rome, Roman Empire, all that, right? Like You have Caesar Augustus decreeing that all the people should be registered. And so this causes Joseph and Mary to go from Nazareth, which is like up north in Israel, so in the Galilee region, and cause them to go from there to where? Bethlehem. And it is there that she goes into labor. And why is that significant? Because remember Micah 5.2 that we talked about last time. Where was the Messiah to be born? Bethlehem. So the Lord orchestrated this whole registration in order to get Joseph and Mary to move like, I don't know, 100, maybe 200 miles, okay, south, um, in order to get them in the right spot at the right time so that Jesus was born in the right place. That's amazing. And we often tell kids, like, the world doesn't revolve around you. But in this case, the world really was revolving around this one kid. Okay, that's glorious. That's amazing. But then you kind of continue on to verse 7. And it's once again maybe one of those more lowly parts of the birth that you wouldn't quite expect. And so verse 7 says of Luke chapter 2, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And at first glance, you may be wondering, what, what's so lowly about this verse? That's kind of what we normally hear. We've heard those kind of phrases maybe a lot. Like, it's really, what's so lowly about that? Well, let's point out a couple things. First of all, it speaks of the baby being laid in a manger. A manger is a feeding trough for animals. So, not the most elegant kind of crib you would think of. Okay. Uh, second... The reason he is being laid there is because Luke explains that there is no room for them in the inn. And now this passage, I think, has been often misunderstood and has a variety of interpretations of what this inn was referring to and all that. But I'll kind of give you what I believe is going on here. So first of all, there was no inn. Okay, so don't get mad at the innkeeper because he never existed. Okay? So, poor guy, always gets looked down upon all that, but he didn't even exist, okay? Uh, the term Luke uses here, uh, that we translate in, is actually the same word used for the guest room later on in, like, Luke 22, verse 11, which is where Jesus and the disciples had their Passover meal right before his death, kind of that upper room. And even, like, if you think of the parable of, like, the Good Samaritan and all that, Luke uses, like, a different word for, like, an inn. Okay, so this is probably not referring to an inn. So it's referring to this kind of guest room, this upper room type of thing. And so, okay, well, what's going on here then? Well, archaeology has revealed that most homes kind of in that first century in Israel were actually two stories. During the day, the family would occupy both stories like normal. But at night, the family would normally sleep upstairs while the bottom level would be reserved for bringing in animals for the night to kind of protect them from being stolen or protect them from predators. And so a lot of times those houses were found to have mangers or feeding troughs in them because that is where the animals were kept overnight. So they had these mangers in there to kind of feed the animals overnight, all that. So it seems Mary is giving birth to Jesus in this bottom level rather than the upper level. And so why is this significant? 
Well, let's make some connections here. First, why are they in Bethlehem? Because of the registration and because Joseph's lineage is from there. So where do you think Joseph would be looking to stay while they were there? With who? Family, right? Not necessarily an inn or whatever, right? Like, but with family. And But why then is Mary giving birth on the bottom floor rather than the upper guest room? Is it really because there was no room? I don't, I don't think so. That seems to be kind of like an ironic statement because if you think of like ancient Near Eastern hospitality, that's legendary. There's always room. Even when you may really think there's not, there's room, right? Like, um, and I'm sure, right, even if you just think from our perspective, if a relative was going into labor, you would definitely make room, right? But they don't. Why? Because remember, Mary was found to be pregnant before they were officially married. And so there was much shame associated with that in that culture at that time. And what? They would have considered her an adulteress. And the fact that Joseph didn't divorce her would have also been looked down upon by others as well. And so there is no room in the upper guest room. Why? To intentionally bring shame on this birth. You can go give birth down with the animals. That's what's happening here. And so again, not at all what you would expect for the birth of the Messiah. But the account doesn't stop there. We then see the Lord send angels to proclaim the birth of the Messiah. And again, you'd maybe be thinking, oh man, that's glorious. That's awesome. He's sending angels to proclaim this. That's huge. And kind of think like, well, where is he sending them? Where is he going to send these angels to proclaim this message? Is it Jerusalem? Like maybe to like the king or maybe to like the temple or something or, ooh, or maybe even like Rome, go to like the capital of the Roman empire, declare like the true king is here, all that. Right. But where does he send them to a field outside Bethlehem and to who shepherds, not what you would expect, but even though that's the case, it still ends gloriously. Because what ends up happening, the angel declares to these shepherds that the Messiah has been born in Bethlehem. And so they go to Bethlehem to find this baby, which probably would have created a pretty big commotion. It wasn't like a huge town or anything. And since it was during the night and they don't, again, remember, they don't know where they're going. The angels said like, you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. That doesn't tell them where it is. So they're probably going door to door trying to figure out where this kid is, they probably have all their sheep with them because they're not just going to leave their sheep despite what some Christmas carols kind of say. That's like their livelihood. They're not going to leave them out there. So they probably bring in all their sheep, making this commotion, all that. And then they finally find Jesus. And they explain to everyone what they had been told concerning this child. And it says, all who heard it wondered. But then notice how this account ends in verse 20. Even though it may not have been what you had pictured for this long-awaited birth, look at verse 20. It says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. It ends with the shepherds glorifying and praising God. It ends with worship. Such a fitting end to the birth of the long-awaited Messiah. The one who for generations had been anticipated and looked forward to has come. The seed has come. Shiloh has come. Emmanuel has come. 
praise the Lord. And so hopefully we can see the significance here of what we celebrate during this time of year. And hopefully we'll have that same response as the shepherds. Worship. Praise the Lord for sending his son. And real quick, as we kind of wrap up here, another thought, like hopefully again, this stirs us to worship this time of year. But then also it's it's interesting because while we we saw the longing and anticipation of those of the Old Testament, right? We just spent weeks talking about the kind of angst, the waiting, the longing for the coming of the Messiah. It's interesting because now what? We are the ones also longing and anticipating the Messiah. But now it's not just him coming, it's his return. Okay, that we're now the ones anticipating him to return and come back. And so hopefully this time of year, let us look back at the coming of the Messiah and like think of, offer that worship, praise, all that. Let us look back, but also let us look forward to the return of our Messiah and be longing and anticipating that as well. Okay? So again, hopefully this series has been encouraging you uh, as we went through this time of year, just getting hopefully your focus right of what actually we're celebrating, the big deal of what we're celebrating. And again, hopefully this isn't just this time of year <laughs> that we focus on this. Hopefully this is all throughout the year. But again, hopefully this was helpful and that gives you that encouragement of worshiping the Lord for sending his son and the big deal that is. But then also, hopefully, as I mentioned here, this also prompts us to also be the ones now anticipating, looking forward as we await the return of our Messiah and all that he will accomplish when he comes. Okay? So that's going to do it for today's episode. And so we'll catch you all next time.